Dynasty of the Holy Grail by Vern Swanson Preface When the pupil is ready, the master will appear. Celtic Wisdom This book to me is a rough-cut study into the connection between the Holy Gospel and the Holy Grail. While it testifies that Jesus is truly the Christ, this book deals more with his mortality than his mission. I will one day soon publish a book on the atonement of Jesus Christ dealing with his mission. None of the theories contained in this book are necessarily true, and certainly they are not Mormon doctrine. They are merely plausible musings inferred from scholarly investigation that might offer insights into God's reason for appearing to the boy Joseph Smith Jr. in the spring of 1820. There were no special revelations given to me while writing this publication, just speculation built upon voluminous research and a modicum of solid facts. The ideas in this book are not official LDS teachings, but merely reflect my opinions and those of others. They are given with reservation because, as Dr. William E. Phipps once noted, few have ventured to blaze a trail into this obscure area because it is overgrown with cultic, cultic taboos. Allow me to start at the beginning and reveal how I came to write this book and those who are responsible for its progress. When I was a 14-year-old convert of one week to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my distraught mother made me meet with a Church of Christ minister, the Reverend Everett Cade of Medford, Oregon. Mother hoped that this anti-Mormon deprogrammer would dissuade me from continuing as a member of the satanic LDS cult. Throughout the later part of July, until school started in the fall of 1959, I met each Saturday morning with Reverend Cade. In the most kindly manner, he negated, negatively cited every controversial LDS practice, historical point, and theological concept. Adam God, Blood Atonement, Church Succession, Joseph Smith's Foibles, The Danites, Mountain Meadow Massacre, Polygamy, Polytheism, Satan as the Brother of Christ, and of course a married Jesus were just a few of the more heretical topics. But being a totally ignorant recent convert, these intellectual syllogisms had little effect on my intense but clueless testimony. Like Parzival, my brain simply didn't know enough to appreciate his sophisticated and scholarly diatribes. However, unlike Revencade, I would rather be ignorant than misinformed. In retrospect, most of my gospel research and apologetics since that time have centered on the critical Protestant uh, protestations of Revencade. His Bible college thesis focused on a common motif of the 18th to early 20th centuries in the northeastern United States. Reverend Cade had discovered nearly 40 people who had gone into groves, woodsheds, attics, and bedrooms, and received some kind of sacred epiphany. These individuals then organized religious movements. Religious leaders such as Jemima Wilkinson, Mary Baker Eddy, and Ellen G. White, he claimed had spiritual visions when they founded and then founded religious organizations. How could we be sure that God really visited Joe Smith, he quizzed, when so many others had claimed the same thing? My answer, he just did, seemed anemic even at the time of my young life. Yet Reverend Cade's questions crowded my mind. Why Joe Smith from upstate New York? Why not just some other sincere seeker? What was so special about him that God the Father and Jesus should visit him and not another? Again, 
my answer to the minister. He was a nice guy, seemed lame. This all stuck in my craw from that time onward and was ultimately responsible for my writing this book. My quest stemmed from these challenging questions. For years, the distinguishing factor that set Joseph Smith Jr. apart from the other claimants eluded me. I understood that anciently God had selected his prophets, such as Moses and Samuel, from among the tribes of Israel. But here was a Gentile from Vermont claiming the prerogatives of God's chosen people. How could this be? Ultimately came the discovery that another Joseph, Joseph of Egypt, was the key to everything. While working on my Ph.D. in art history at the University of London between 1978 and 1980, I became intellectually interested in the British-Israelite movement. At the LDS Hyde Park Ward in South Kensington, I met Michael Danvers Walker. He claimed that his heritage came through Joseph of Arimathea, and he introduced me to a number of books sold by the British-Israel World Federation, then housed at number 10 Buckingham Gate in London. Their idea that Christ visited Somerset and Cornwall as a youth intrigued me. Also mesmerizing were the concepts that a Christian church in Britain was founded by Joseph of Arimathea and that the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene visited this area. Ever since my first visit to Glastonbury in Somerset with Utah artists Dennis V. Smith and Trevor J.T. Southey, in 1979, I have experienced a special tug to understand more about this fascinating topic. By 1979, I had read most of the LDS books on the subject, including those by James H. Anderson, E.L. Whitehead, Legrand Richards, and Ogden Kraut. But it was while reading the book Words of Joseph Smith, edited by Andrew Ehat and Leiden Cook, that my interest became fixated on the heritage of Joseph Smith, Jr., the man nobody knew. Soon I began to realize that Joseph Smith was of the lineage of Jesus Christ, which helped to legitimize his authority to organize the Lord's Church in the latter days. The answer to Reverend Cade's question, what's so special about Joseph Smith that the father and son would visit him, was answered with, he is the heir of the family. By the autumn of 1981, the first draft of what eventually became this book was written. I have had many mentors in writing and researching this tome on the Holy Grail. My wife, Judy Nielsen, has supported me in this extensive project, even in accompanying me to the Roslyn Chapel with our friend Gerald A. Jacobs, Gerald H. Jacobs, in June 1997. With the help of my intrepid publishers, Lyle Mortimer and Lee Nelson of Cedar Fort Incorporated, I visited the Holy Land in 2004, which solidified my research of two and a half decades. Without the help and traveling companionship of Tony and Tracy Fieldstead, searching for the Holy Grail would not have been as rewarding or successful. My friend Robin Bird Lamb, <clears throat> an Arthurian scholar, has been a font of wisdom and knowledge. The same is true for my half-brother Robert D. Hill, BYU religion professor Dr. Eric D. Huntsman, genealogist Michael Kennedy, genetic scientist Ugo Perego, esotericist John Michael of Mitchell of London, educator Dr. Chase Peterson, Grail enthusiast Ellie Sontag, and New York Times bestselling author Al Switzler. However, they are not to be blamed for this publication's many shortcomings, but it would have been worse without them. James C. Christensen's marvelous cover painting, 
for the book will undoubtedly win more awards than the book itself. This book is dedicated to broaching a wide array of fact and theory regarding the bloodlines of Jesus Christ down to Joseph Smith Jr. By publishing it now, I hope that public interest will lead to a more unblemished and complete future publication. This topic is serious business, and we all want to eventually get it right. Therefore, I enlist all readers' assistance in helping to perfect this volume's third revised edition. In this, I concur with Dr. William E. Phipps, who asked for similar help. Quote, In order that a verified hypothesis regarding Jesus' marital status may emerge, a mutual exchange of insight is needed. I share Charles Pierce's position that scientific truth on any issue is that eventual position that emerges as unchallenged after competent investigators have reviewed the evidence, contributed their individual half-truths, and corrected one another. For this reason, the candid criticisms of readers from various religious traditions is solicited. All responses will be cordially received and carefully considered. I would be especially interested to learn of errors of fact or of judgment contained in this volume and suggested and suggestions of other ramifications and new sources of information. End quote. My daughters Amber and Angela have been my inspiration for this book. Amber has always taken a keen interest in genealogy, especially the Joseph Smith Jr. bloodline. She was the first to persuade me to publish this volume. Angela has been my chief editor and critic. She helped me shape the book and round it to completion. I am eternally thankful for their inspiring testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and their encouragement to seek the Holy Grail. The second revised edition of this book was made possible by over 400 people who saw fit to contact me with the errors they found and additions they felt would perfect the 2013 edition. Without Brother Jerry Herndon's editing and the contributions of so many, I fear this volume would have remained, as one detractor called it, worthless literary trash. All but two respondents have felt spiritually uplifted by this study, and no, I have not been chastised by any LDS authorities. Knowing that further light and knowledge is out there, I again ask for your help to improve this publication. My email address is vswanson at smofa.org. And my mailing address is below. I thank you all. Introduction. The things of God are of deep import, and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can find them out. Joseph Smith, 1839. Nothing written here should be construed as Mormon doctrine for the early Latter-day Saint literature regarding the marriage of Jesus was never elevated to doctrinal status. I fully endorse the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints statement of the 16th of May 2006 in response to the Da Vinci Code book and movie. Quote, the belief that Christ was married was never, has never been official church doctrine. It is neither sanctioned nor taught by the church. While it is true that a few church leaders in the mid-1800s expressed their opinions on the matter, it was not then and is not now church doctrine. End quote. I do not teach of Christ's possible marriage as church doctrine, but only as a probable postulate. What is written are perspectives of an active and faithful Mormon examining the questions of the Holy Grail bloodline. Legends in Relationship to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though the Holy Grail is an enchanting metaphor of fairy, fairly late origin in the 12th century and is a contrivance when compared to the restored gospel, 
The two have much to say to each other. In the end, I conclude that Jesus was married, and this marriage healed the breach between the tribes of Judah and Ephraim. Then his children, the Shiloh dynasty, in two lines, male and female, representing these tribes again converge in the person of Joseph Smith Jr. From this lineal heirship, Joseph derived much of his authority and right to open the last dispensation. The quest for the Holy Grail is a crusade of righteous endeavor for the divine within us all. Because of the formidable culture, historical, and sectarian obstacles that must be overcome, the truth of the Grail, while offered to all, is understood by a relative few. Mosiah 26.3 reminds us, And now behold, of their unbelief they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. The Latin phrases, fides quaterens intellectum, faith-seeking understanding, and credo ut intellectum, I believe in order to understand, places our knowledge first on faith and then on fact. This leap of faith into the Lord's gospel will bring knowledge and power to all sincere seekers of the Holy Grail. Only the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the moral core and theological vision to challenge the world's view dramatically for the better. By clear-minded, valiant, humble, and righteous wholeheartedness, we can win this most exquisite prize. We bask in the exploits of the knight Don Quixote, for he was such a quester on a fool's errand, willing to go into hell for a heavenly cause. Quote, and the world would be better for this, that one man, torn and covered with scars, still fought for the last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable stars. End quote. There was one man who most resembles the aspirations of this remarkable ballad. This Galahad-like knight was the best blood of the 19th century. He was Joseph Smith Jr., a farm boy from upstate New York. This young prophet's life and mission have caught the imagination of sincere seekers everywhere. His quest led to an all to all manner of evil being spoken of him, to relentless persecution, and eventually to his death by a ruthless mob. This martyr discovered in himself the Holy Grail, the vessel of the Sangreal, meaning royal blood. The Grail was therefore not just a goblet or chalice, but a human earthen receptacle that carried the Holy Blood through certain lineages of promise. As the medieval writer Robert de Boron proclaimed, this vessel should indeed be called the Grail. The Pentecostal hymn, There's Power in the Blood, announces that it is through the wellspring blood, real, not metaphorical, of Jesus Christ that mankind is saved. All true Christians believe in the atoning blood shed on the cross. To this, Mormons have added the blood shed in Gethsemane as having superior redemptive value. However, there is a third place in which the blood of Jesus Christ may have atoning worth for the salvation of souls. It is not just in the blood Jesus shed, but also in the blood Jesus shared. It is through his living bloodline, perpetuated through his seed, that a wasted world will be saved. It is a crimson bloodline flowing down through the centuries. Of it, Joseph the prophet might have said, Flumen sacrum bene cognosco. I recognize the sacred stream. After about 70 generations, the grail was more than just a bloodline. It was, very, it was the very power of Jesus Christ unto salvation. 
Joseph used it to divinely restore the wasteland, making it verdant, rustic, and innocent in the latter time. Patriarch John Smith said of Joseph, I have thought when the prophet Joseph began to trace his genealogy, I should learn some things. What he learned was that brother Joseph was descended through the earthly family of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Then, through revelation, Joseph revealed to the world the lost secret of an even greater holy grail. It was a heavenly birthright, or spirit line, descending from celestial parents. This book, however, shall deal only with the earthly grail vessel of the rosy bloodline from Adam to Jesus, and then on to Joseph Smith Jr. and beyond. Once the established Christian churches were only interested in criticizing the Mormon idea of the marriage of Jesus. Then they wisely refused to engage radical feminist and Gnostic solemnists, or palmetists, <laughs> regarding the sacred marriage. Since the 1970s, the field has been entirely given up to left-wing liberal writers and their false fantasies of a priory of Sion. Merovingian Cathar, Knights Templar, and Renaissance connection to Christ's bloodline. This all changed in 2003 when Dan Brown's best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, burst upon the scene as a means of airing corrosive anti-Christian theology. Since then, a spat of at least 20 Christian books and a host of websites give cross-examinations to the question of Christ and the Magdalene's relationship. Now we have the opportunity to read rebuttals and hear counter-arguments as to Jesus' marital and familial status, esoteric secret societies, and dangerous conspiracies. Scholars from both sides of the equation are thoroughly engaged in these questions. The topic has now become one of central concern to the Latter-day Saints, Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic Christians, who were concerned over the factual information found in the fictional The Da Vinci Code. A Hollywood movie version of Dan Brown's novel has undercut the book's already marginal factual base. Dan Brown's future novel may negatively center on the Mormons and the Freemasons. Forewarned is forearmed. The purpose of this publication is to provide honest research and sound methodology on the topic because many people do not have significant gospel framework to interpret grail findings. Too often, when they receive contrary data or hear false propaganda, they often scuttle the little framework they have. Through this apologetic, I want to fortify LDS members' resolve with a faithful text and meaningful context, and hopefully with no pretext. Still, I worry about those who might not be ready for this publication. Yet to do nothing would be regrettably missed opportunity to be prepared for for imminent assaults in this area. For some time now, the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have understandably been reverentially silent on this concept of a married Jesus Christ. Because of historic persecution and possible harm to missionary work, I cautiously enter into the discussion on the topic. Of course, anti-Mormons already have all the documentary ammunition they need on our views of the marriage of Christ to attack the LDS Church and its members. On the other hand, the growing popularity of the idea of a married Jesus might not hurt our proselytizing efforts after all. This book needed to be published because almost all the Gentile literature on the topic since 1982 has been ideologi ideologically corrosive 
to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I broached the topic humbly and with a brief belief that the truth will prevail only when it is presented. We should not give up the field to our antagonists, but we should stand up for the truth as far as revelation, logic, and historical evidence will allow us. In the Lord's due time, we shall know the truth, uh, all know the truth and errors as set forth in this volume. There is always the possible danger of writing a historical and theological treatise after one's own image of the truth. But if fear and error prevented inquiry into the above proposition, then we would all, then we would be unworthy seekers. As the cynic demands proof of this unique thesis, one can say, but will you accept my evidence as proof? Mr. F. M. Cornford realized the difficulty in attempting to prove a postulate. Quote, many literary critics seem to think that a hypothesis about obscure and remote questions of history can be refuted by a simple demand for the production of more evidence than in fact exists. The demand is as easy to make as it is impossible to satisfy, but the true test of an hypothesis, if it cannot be shown to conflict with known truths, is the number of facts that it correlates and explains, end quote. This is reminiscent of the question by Orson Hyde, president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Well, you say that appears rather plausible, but I want a little more evidence. I want you to find where it says the Savior was actually married. There was never enough empirical evidence or hard facts for the naysayers. Of course, plausibility does not equal actuality. Certain this volume does not represent official LDS doctrine or present the LDS Church's theological positions. Neither is, is it a complete analysis of the topic. More remains to be done. Risking being called unnuanced and ridiculed for being a literalist, archaic Christian, I commence the study of blended history and myth. History, writes Malcolm Godwin, is doggedly linear by nature, while myth is cyclic. The oil and water of history and myth do not naturally fuse, so I cleverly attribute all problems with this book to this quandary. Fortunately, I had the richest of all Western myths and history to work with. The following suppositions and research have explained much to me, but I fear it will not sway the critic or the cynic that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Master. Only the Holy Ghost can do that. Brigham Young often said about such conundrums, and when we go through the veil, we shall know much more about these matters than we do now do. I have faith that with your help and assistance, a better volume will eventually come because of this initial publication. Part 1. The Grail Covenant of the Old Testament As it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee, Abraham. But through thy ministry my name shall be known in the earth forever. Abraham 1, verse 19. In considering the subject of the Holy Grail, several questions present themselves. Where does the root of the story begin? Celtic scholar Roger Sherman Loomis correctly believed that the tradition began in Ireland. 
Others believe that the Grail of Romances originated in Wales with Irish influence. But the further we look into the past, the more we find convergences that relate to our account. We might even find it as broadly as the enduring fairy tales of Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Cinderella, or Mozart's Magic Flute. But where does it really begin? Unquestionably, the legend of the Holy Grail originates, on this earth at least, with Adam and Eve. Therefore, we must start at the beginning and trace God's dealings with mankind through the ages. Often when the prophets expound upon sacred things, they rehearse the history of the gospel from the days of the great patriarchs to the last generation. Any discussion of God's grail promises to man needs to be prefaced by a recitation of these covenants from the time of the Ancient of Days, Michael or Adam, to the last days. From the far reaches of time through the intricate paths of the Bible Chronicle, the descendants of Adam and Eve have been under special covenants unto the Lord. These covenants have often been received or renewed through the cup to the lips or to drink to it, as in the Last Supper. Thus, the cup represents the promises from the Father to his children. From Heavenly Father, the Archangel Michael was ordained to be the father of the human race. Modern scripture states that Michael is the selfsame person as Adam from the Garden of Eden. Therefore, he shall be called Michael, Adam, throughout most of the text. His position as head of the human family came with the keys of the priesthood and bloodline authority. This authority to act in the name of God comes in two ways, by covenant with a people and by covenant with a person. The first way is by being born under a covenant, and the second is having authority given by blessing through the laying on of hands. Both the patriarchal and the Melchizedek orders should be present in order to have a fully living and true gospel. The Holy Grail and Holy Order is here associated with the de uh, descent of Heavenly Father's family on earth, passed genetically down through the ages by the patriarchs to this day. As a vehicle for passing down the authority of God, it is something more than a bloodline, as it is much more than just a cup. On earth, this authority passed from Adam to Enoch, and then to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph of Egypt, and on to its greatest holder, Jesus Christ. The dynasty then, according to our theory, passed directly onward to Joseph Smith Jr. in the 19th century. This study seeks to answer fundamental questions about origins, lineal descent, lines of authority, and the legend of a hidden grail king. These are the ideas we shall probe. It is not just the grail vessel we are concerned with, but the hollow of the grail vessel and its precious contents. Chapter 1. The Birthright and the Lineage It was conferred upon me from the fathers. It came down from the fathers from the beginning of time, yea, even from the beginning, or before the foundation of the earth, down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man, who is Adam, or first father, through the fathers, unto me. Abraham chapter 1 verse 3. Premortal Birthright. Joseph Smith restored what he called the ancient order, the patriarchal priesthood, this holy order of parents and children back to Adam. Along these lines, Brigham Young brilliantly established a trajectory of thought. He pronounced that the seed of Abraham would continue into the latter days, and through it would come the keys of religious authority. Hence the calling of Abraham and the reestablishing of a government of God to be perpetuated in his lineage forever, which lineage is elected, 
to reign and rule and hold the keys of religion, priesthood, power, and government, while the earth endures, and in worlds without end. Behold the result descending the stream of time and tracing the fortunes of the chosen or royal lineage. The historical sacred record of the covenants in the genealogy of God's chosen race, whom we consider in this publication as the living vessel of the Holy Grail, has not always been clear or complete. Ezra 2 verse 59 describes the problem that some had in ancient days, but they could not show their father's house and their seed whether they were of Israel. Then a few verses later we learn, These sought after their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. Although lost to the understanding of contemporary society, birthright and lineage combined to construct a foundation for Judeo-Christianity. The idea of binding a literal and adopted covenant people between those whom he has chosen and those who have chosen him is the basis upon which the greater gospel rests. This vanguard people, or race, were given special responsibilities to bless the world for the betterment of all its peoples. They were to be servants, not masters. It is a well-known principle that a few people do most of the work. It is also well known that the Hebrew, Israelite, and Jewish people, the apple of God's eye, have vastly outcontributed their fellow beings in terms of the arts, politics, commerce, science, and philosophy. That the world has been blessed through the Hebrew people is undeniable, except in the opinions of most recalcitrant anti-Semite. After all, it is from the lineage that the Savior Jesus Christ was born, and we shall later learn that this might apply to those born from the Lord's own seed. For blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come, for it shall be the seed of the woman, not the offspring of the man. Either literal seed or adopted through faith, it is the same. Yet most people do not understand what the Lord says about the children of Abraham and Joseph, and how through their seed shall the kindred of the earth be blessed. Even they, the birthright lineage themselves, do not fully understand the inner workings of the kingdom of God on this earth. These are temporary things tied directly to celestial councils. But the world does not understand, as Jesus rightly pointed out, if I have told you of earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Many earthly blessings were predicated upon pre-mortal callings and ordinations. Everybody who has lived upon this earth had a life as a spirit before, uh, as a spirit being before their birth into mortality. Whatever degree of attainment achieved during the first estate or pre-mortality had its effect on our mortal lives. Many noble spirits were accorded the privilege of choosing their birthright lineage. Parley P. Pratt takes note of this principle. As in the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is with a view of the noble spirits in the eternal world coming through their lineage and being taught in the commandments of God. Hence the prophets, kings, priests, patriarchs, apostles, and even Jesus Christ were included in the election of Abraham and of his seed, as manifested to him in an eternal covenant. The principles of superiority, of intellect, nobleness, of action, and capacity to act were all duly noted before we left our heavenly home for this second estate and mortality on earth. Were there certain advantages for those who served or contributed more in the pre-existence? 
Were those spirits interested in coming through special lineages on this earth? Pratt answers, yes, they would. For they could say, now there is an opportunity for us to take bodies in the lineage of a noble race, and to be educated in the true science of life, and in the commandments of God. Thus we see that the priesthood of God is the birthright of the people of God, and then only as they are worthy of possessing it. As only an innocent and righteous Sir Galahad, Hebrew name Gilead, could possess the Holy Grail, so also is the priesthood birthright covenant the Holy Grail only secured by those faithfully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only through righteousness can one be inducted into the lineage of the priesthood and drink from the cup that Jesus promised to drink with us at the Last Supper, the cup of the Holy Grail. The Vessel of the Holy Grail The holy vessel, be it a literal cup, chalice, cruet, or cauldron, is the symbol of the Holy Grail and not necessarily the Holy Grail itself. It is used as a point of reference with non-Mormon literature to help us understand that the religious history of the world is a grail history. Numerous cups have been mentioned in ancient scriptures that have played important roles. It is enticing to think that the cup of the Holy Grail had more ancient roots than just the Last Supper. Perhaps the P Pythagorean cup of Lith, which souls drink to forget premortal life, was this self-same vessel. Possibly it was Adam and Eve's hypothesized cup with which they drank from the fountain of youth at the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. What about the silver divining cup in Benjamin's sack that was owned by Joseph of Egypt? Perhaps this glorious cup was inherited by Joseph's son Ephraim. Then the Magdalen family possibly inherited this heirloom through direct lineal descent. Was this same cup part of Mary Magdalene's dowry at her marriage in Cana? If this hypothesis is true, then the cup of the Last Supper and Holy Grail could have been this exquisite silver cup of Joseph. As we dream of these things, little documented facts gives way to much speculative hypothesis. Perhaps the most important sip of all was taken from the bitter cup of Gethsemane, full with fury and dregs. It might have been from this vile cup of trembling mentioned in Isaiah 51, for it is said, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon upon the name of the Lord. Is this the cup that the Father gave Jesus? There is the mysterious pagan cup of power associated with the magical powers and lance. Or is it the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? And then there is this horrible portion of the cup that all men, a portion of their cup, that all men must drink in the last day. For it has been decreed, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Whether this inheritance is a cup of consolation, full of pleroma, or a cup of trembling, fury, wrath, astonishment, desolation, and indignation, depends upon the individual's personal worthiness. If not silver, then what is the cup of the Lord's right hand made of? Perhaps it is the golden cup in the Lord's hand, spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 51, or fired clay, as in the sherds thereof in Ezekiel 23. One of the most famous was the cup of blue grass with a green surround, decorated with tiny crosses, found in 1906 in Glastonbury's Bride's Well. Originally, the cup came from <laughs> Bordeguera, where, which is very near the Grail village of Saborga, Italy. 
in the 1890s and was hidden in the well in 1898, only to be discovered eight years later. Another glass bowl described as the Holy Grail is the Antioch Cup, which resides in the cloisters at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Discovered in 1910, it came to the cloisters in 1950, and while magnificent in its silver guild framework, the museum notes that it is no earlier than the 6th century AD. That the grail must positively be a glass chalice first occurs in a lecture given in 1927 in Manchester, England. However, such certainty is difficult to muster in the early 21st century. Where is the great and mysterious grail itself? The Italian cathedral of Genoa claims to be in possession of the authentic vessel. The Spanish cathedral at Valencia has now joined the squabble claiming that they house the sacred chalice. Another cup in Trent, Italy, also purports to be the Grail. However, the quest for the Holy Grail transcends any search for the sacred artifact and becomes the very quest for the truth of our own and mankind's origin and destiny. Instead of gold, silver, lead, pottery, emerald, onyx, amethyst, enamel, stone, kalal, goblet, glass, or crystal, perhaps the cup was a simple lathed cup of olive wood made from the trees of Gethsemane. England professes to hold the true grail. The Nanteos Cup, once owned by the monks of Glastonbury Abbey, when they fled to Wales after the dissolution of the Roman Catholic Church in England by Henry VIII. This cup was supposedly made by the young Jesus himself in his father's workshop. It is considered exceedingly precious, not only because Christ used it, but also because he made it. What could be more appropriate than to have the cup made of olive wood and used in Gethsemane, except that all experts under this mazer or bowl hails from medieval times and is made of white elm? Grail author Graham Phillips notes that in 1920, a small onyx scent jar was found in Hawkstone Park dating from the first century. He believes it was used at the tomb by Mary Magdalene to collect blood from Jesus. How this could have happened since Jesus was already resurrected when she got to the tomb is unexplained. On the other hand, the paper or plastic cup of the weekly Sunday LDS sacrament cannot be ignored in light of the above-mentioned prominent cups, for certainly it is a cup of remembrance and a cup of consolation. Ultimately, the cup equates with a vessel and the vessel with a human and the human with a destiny chosen race, and the destiny with the very power of God. The Holy Grail was more than just a shell or cup container. It was a living vessel. The only Christian church that gives much prominence to genealogical authority is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true priesthood and living bloodline church upon the face of the whole earth. The Two Families you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3, verse 2. Considerest thou not the two families which the Lord hath chosen? Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-four. An interesting episode occurred to the Lord's chosen people at the time of Jacob, or Israel's twelve sons. Reuben was Jacob's eldest by his first wife Leah, and rightful heir to the full patriarchal birthright, but he was guilty of gross misconduct in defiling his father's bed when he lied with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Thus Reuben and his posterity lost all rights of the firstborn when he was found to be unstable. It would have been impossible to get 
have given the corrupted Reuben the birthright, the messianic covenant of the royal line, and then say, I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. Often this is symbolized by rose or grapevines weaving its way through the annals of time. Jacob's wife Leah was Laban's eldest daughter. She had been palmed off on Jacob after he worked seven years for the hand of Rachel, the younger sister. When Leah's child Reuben lost his birthright, it did not go to her second or third son, Simeon or Levi, who had overzealously defended their sister Dinah's honor by murdering the perpetrator and his entire family. Instead, the birthright went to the firstborn of Rachel, Jacob's second and favored wife. In the blessing for brides, Rachel is named first above her older sister Leah. Her child Joseph was the eleventh of Jacob's twelve sons and became the anointed one. His name meant fruitful. Perhaps this was the true reason why he was sold into Egypt by his elder brothers, especially the ringleaders Simeon and Levi, who were supposedly in line to receive the birthright. But since Rachel was originally scheduled to be the first wife, even though Joseph was already born by the time of Reuben's sin, he became the rightful holder of the birthright. On the other hand, the covenant blessing of the royal scepter went to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. Since Judah was the first righteous son of Jacob, and much older than Joseph, the birthright was divided so that the scepter was given to the elder son, but the blessings of the firstborn went with Joseph. With the division of birthright power between Joseph and Judah, and the later conferral of priesthood authority to the sons of Levi through Aaron, we see an important but dangerous pattern emerging. When the priesthood mantle fell on Jacob, he was a patriarch holding all the keys pertaining to the birthright, but when his youngest grandson Ephraim took his place, it was the end of the old patriarchal system in the beginning of a power-sharing era. Although Moses and later David, who would hold great authority in their hands, the birthright blessing was divided. A line of kingly issue would come from Judah through the house of David, and the birthright bloodline would be traced from Joseph through the time tribe of Ephraim, and later the Levites would hold the priesthood power. The Book of Joseph Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall, the archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd the stone of Israel. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors, unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. Genesis chapter 49, verse 22 through 26. The history of the covenant lineage through Joseph of Egypt is very important in understanding the concept of God's chosen people. In Genesis chapter 48, thy seed shall become a multitude of nations. The italicized part may be translated as the fullness of the Gentiles. For Joseph was a fruitful bough, from which came a throng of nations, now considered by Jewry as Gentiles. Yet through his seed the entire world was blessed, including the Gentiles through whom they were scattered. Nearly a fourth of the book of Genesis, which spans over 2,000 years of history, is devoted to the life of Joseph of Egypt. An LDS scripture scholar, Robert J. Matthews, points out 
that proportion that proportion ought to give us an idea of how Moses, the inspired author of Genesis, felt about the importance of Joseph's story. Although Joseph was the chosen birthright son of Jacob, there is hardly a more ignored patriarch than this seer. Yet many Christian scholars have looked upon the life of Joseph as a type and shadow of the life of Jesus Christ. We read from Genesis chapter 37, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors, or lengths. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him, and could not speak peaceable unto him. Jacob's great love motivated a prophetic birthright blessing upon his favored son that is very evocative. Jacob's reference to the everlasting hills in the blessing might be interpreted, interpreted as the Western Hemisphere, namely North and South America. The declaration that he would be separated from his brethren was partially fulfilled during the Book of Mormon times when Lehi left Jerusalem for the Americas, and later during the North American uh, European colonization of the New World. Joseph Fielding Smith explained, because of his faithfulness and integrity, Joseph received a greater blessing than the progenitors of Jacob and was rewarded with the land of Zion. Zion was not only in Jerusalem, but also in the Americas. Just how important Joseph of Egypt is can be seen in Lehi's statement that I am a descendant of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. And great were the covenants of the Lord which he made unto Joseph, wherefore Joseph truly saw our day. Then his son Nephi revealed that he, Joseph, truly prophesied concerning all his seed, and the prophecies which he wrote, there are not many greater. Many of these prophecies were written in a scripture we title the Book of Joseph. Joseph Smith noted that he wanted to translate the scroll of the Book of Joseph that was found, like the Book of Abraham, among the Michael Chandler Egyptian papyri in 1835. Sadly, he never accomplished this task, which might have been the proof text to my present efforts. Though it was never translated, we gather from the letter written by Oliver Cowdery to Mr. Fry that it included vital information on the Godhead, the fall of Adam, and other important facts regarding this earth. Perhaps this ancient text would have revealed the importance of Joseph Smith's birthright lineage. Because of his brilliance as a seer, Joseph of old was given the Egyptian name zaphnath Panea by the Pharaoh, which means he who reveals that which is hidden. In the Samaritan tongue, the name for Joseph is Tahib, or the Restorer. Certainly, these names reference the restoration of light and knowledge that would become the mission of Joseph and his posterity. Like all who hold positions of authority in God's ministry, Joseph ben Jacob was chosen and ordained in the council of heaven near the end of his first estate. Among his blessings was the greatness of his offspring. The secret of Joseph's progeny would, as Mel Melvin J. Ballard surmises, unlock the mystery of God's chosen people. If we could find in the earth somewhere today the descendants of Joseph, we would find the chosen people of God. This is confirmed by Joseph of Egypt's prophecy that a choice seer would appear from his seed. Many of the prophecies of Joseph were recorded on the plates of brass. Some were recorded in one, uh, first and second Nephi, three and five, and in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 48 and 50. 
Joseph's ancestry and posterity were supposedly written in a book of remembrance for his family. These records were kept up to date right to the time of Zedekiah, approximately 600 BC, and were in the custody of Laban, who was also a descendant of Joseph, wherefore he and his father had kept the records. In the same year, these records were wrested from the hands of the wicked Laban by Nephi, also a descendant of Joseph's, who held the right to possess them. Ultimately, the history of Joseph's progeny is the history of the Holy Grail, for it is half the stock from which the seed descends. Ephraim becomes the birthright heir, for I am the father of Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, as a shepherd doth his flock. Jeremiah 31.9 Manasseh was the first son of Joseph and his wife Asenath. Joseph's wife had another son, Ephraim, which means, For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Jacob, Israel, gave precedence to the younger Ephraim, even though he linked Ephraim and Manasseh together as paradigms for future generations. Ephraim's ascendancy over his elder brother was first indicated by his grandfather Jacob's blessing, as recorded in Genesis 48. Ephraim was at that time about 21 years old, for he was born while Joseph was vizier of Egypt, before the beginning of the seven-year famine. Like the preceding three generations, there was an interesting subterfuge regarding the birthright and the blessing. Joseph brought his two sons with him when all the twelve sons of Jacob were to receive their blessings at Jacob's sickbed. While the other sons of Jacob received their individual blessings, Joseph was given two blessings, one for each of his two sons born in Egypt. Though only grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted by Jacob as if they were his own children, and consequently, their descendants were regarded as two tribes instead of one. All the posterity of Joseph, both from a historical and a prophetic standpoint, are of these two young men. And now thy sons, thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Even though Manasseh was the firstborn, Jacob intentionally placed his right hand upon Ephraim's head and his left upon Manasseh's. Jacob might have known that the sign of the cross above their heads had an additional meaning. He gave the blessing. The angels which redeemed me from all evil bless the lads, and let my name be named upon them, and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What angel could have redeemed Jacob except Jesus Christ himself? For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When Joseph protested the order of the hand's placement, Jacob refused his remonstration to change the sequence, explaining, I know it, my son, I know it. He, Manasseh, also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. With this, Joseph received a double portion of the blessing of Jacob upon all his sons. It is a testimony to the power and worth of faith. For it is written, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. 
Thus both Ephraim and Manasseh took their place among the twelve tribes of Israel, replacing the sons of Levi, or of Dan, as a separate tribe. In a vision, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. He had the opportunity to see Jacob's blessing upon Ephraim begin to come to pass. The import of this blessing is just now beginning to be understood. We may understand that the latter unique blessings, as stated by Moses upon Ephraim and his elder brother Manasseh, extended to the very last days. His glory is like the firstborn of the bull, of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. The firstling of his bullock alludes to the birthright coming through Joseph to his child Ephraim. The mythical unicorn likely makes reference to a wild ox. This is seen in Joseph Smith's translation, or the inspired version of the Bible, the JST, where he has changed the word from unicorn in Isaiah 34, 7, to wild ox or to a large antelope, oruk, living in Israel in that day, but which is now extinct. All these symbols, or allegories, are an important part of this Ephraimite lineage that should become part of the latter-day Shiloh dynasty of the Holy Grail. After this time, little is known about the life of Ephraim, a minor personality himself, or his posterity, even though his name becomes the primary focus for the genealogy of this sacred birthright. According to scripture, he was faithful, though two of his sons were slain while raiding the cattle of the Philistines. At the first census, Ephraim's tribe of 40,500 men was the smallest of all, excepting his brother Manasseh's and his uncle Benjamin's. Undoubtedly, this was because the other tribes were somewhat older. However, taken together, Joseph's sons formed the largest group. In fact, the tribe of Ephraim would dominate the latter history of this earth in a very real way, both in terms of population and authority. Wilfred Woodruff and Orson Pratt pointed this out. The salvation of both Jew and Gentile, this people hold in their hands, the salvation of the twelve tribes of Israel. It was not the oldest son, but to Ephraim, the son of Joseph, that the promises were made. Joseph was the youngest, but one of the twelve patriarchs, and through his son Ephraim, God raised you up and has put his power into your hands, and you hold the keys for the salvation of Israel. Then later, Apostle Erastus Snow, speaking in the Salt Lake Tabernacle in October 1882, reasserted the Latter-day Saint promises in Genesis. Well, just Latter-day promises in Genesis. He, God, has declared that in the last days Ephraim shall be his firstborn. Them he would gather together, and upon them he would place his holy priesthood, and them he would use as his servants and his instruments to push the people together from the ends of the earth. These quotations demonstrate that God has not forgotten the Ephraimatic tribes as the leader in the dispensation of the fullness of time. Ultimately, Ephraim's and Judah's lot will be grafted together during the meridian of time into a new grail dynasty. Joshua the Ephraimite And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Deuteronomy 34.9 
Only when Joshua the Ephraimite comes into the narrative at the time of the Exodus does the tribe of Ephraim regain its reputation. Even though it's numbered only 32,500 men, because of his military exploits, Joshua became more famous than anyone in his clan, more so than Ephraim, the potter familias of the tribe. One would assume that Joshua was in fact the birthright heir, not only of his tribe but of all Israel. Joshua was the captain of the armies of Israel. At the end of the 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, by divine direction, Moses placed Joshua before the high priest and the congregation in Shittim and publicly ordained him to be his successor. Then, just before his death, Moses took Joshua to the tabernacle to receive this charge from the Lord. With this high authority, Joshua conquered the land of the Canaanites and even commanded that the sun stand still. We are told that he had help from the angel with drawn sword, who explained that he was the commander of God's heavenly armies and helped Joshua to victory over Jericho. After the conquest, Joshua, as a birthright heir, then divided the land of Israel amongst the twelve tribes. He gave his own tribe the land in the central hill country of Palestine, north of the tribe of Benjamin. Ephraim's eastern border was the Jordan River, and to the west was the country of the Philistines on the Mediterranean coast. On the north was the territory assigned to Manasseh. The major sacred cities of the area were Bethel, Shechem, and Shiloh. Bethel was technically in the lands of Benjamin, but was located closer to the children of Ephraim. Shechem was also in the land of Manasseh. After moving the tabernacle and priesthood to the Ephraimite city of Shiloh, Joshua named refuge cities and the Levitical towns. Before he died, Joshua convoked an assembly at Shechem, the place of Abraham's first altar when entering Canaan. In a powerful address, he covenanted with the people to remember the Lord. Soon afterward, at the age of 110, the same age as Joseph when he died, Joshua was buried at Mount Ephraim in the town of Timnath Sarah. From the death of Joshua until Samson, judges ruled the land, which time has been called Israel's Iron Age. The twelve judges were often warrior heroes who saved the country and were accorded the privilege of judging it in political and judicial matters. Due to the lack of leadership, Israel often lapsed into idolatry and bickering. No longer was there a single powerful patriarchal figure like Abraham, who by right of birth or worthiness was given great priesthood and ecclesiastical power. Perhaps this was because the Ephraimites themselves, after being given authority, again lapsed into prideful apostasy. While there was a certain lack of cohesion between the tribes, there were some bonds of national feeling and a single tabernacle, the house of God, at Shiloh that joined them together. Little wonder that eventually the tribes wished to have a king rule over them, who could assert leadership and unity. However, it did not fall upon the tribe of Ephraim to possess the prerogative of the birthright at this time, neither did it fall upon them to possess the mantle of the priest. It is not known who the Ephraimite posterity of Joshua was, except to say that they possessed their inheritance and prospered in the land. It is enticing to believe that Mary Magdalene, our first lady of the quest, was his and his wife's direct heir. She may have been nobility in his house, in line to inherit the silver cup of Joseph. It is my contention that this was, in fact, the grail cup of later legend. 
The scepter of Judah. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. Psalm 78, 67 through 68. Through the centuries, the two most powerful tribes and their heirs of the two strongest blessings from Jacob became bitter enemies. The northern Ephraimite kingdom fell into idolatry, went into bondage, and were eventually dispersed across the face of the earth. But Judea remained for a time. Ephraim compassed me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints." After Judah's children, Ur and Onan, died without children, Shelah, the third son of Judah, would normally have held the right of the firstborn, but since he was a Canaanite woman's offspring, he could not hold this birthright. Upon the death of Ur, his wife, Tamar mated with Judah, his father, and had twin sons Perez and Zerah. Perez was given the status of firstborn after confusing birth sequence. Perez's family would be come celebrated, while the significance of Zerah's lineage would remain a mystery. At about a thousand BC, the nation of Israel wanted a king instead of the judges, for to their thinking, they were only a step down from a patriarch, the ultimate theological king. After the troubled kingship of Saul, the Benjaminite, the right to rule naturally fell to the tribe of Judah, from Boaz and Ruth through Jesse. But why didn't the Ephraimite prophet Samuel choose a son of Jesse for the kingly line in the first place? Was Jesse the purest of the lineage of Judah's line? Because of the disobedience of King Saul, the Lord commanded the prophet Samuel to fill his horn with oil and seek out one of the sons of Jesse to be king. Jesse's first son, Eliab, was impressive in appearance, but Samuel felt inspired not to choose him. One after another, Jesse brought seven of his sons to be examined by Samuel, but none were chosen. Disheartened, Samuel begged Jesse, "All uh, Are here all thy children? He learned that the youngest child, David, was left to tend the sheep. When he arrived, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And David was anointed in the midst of his brethren. Samuel's calling and anointing of David to be the first Jewish king of Israel was in similitude of Jesus Christ. As Joseph F. McConkie can, notes, consider how perfectly it, the calling of David, foretells both the setting and the events that would surround the coming of Christ. While David was chosen of God, he was not perfect. In fact, except for Jesus Christ, none of God's servants throughout the history of the world seems to have been perfect. It is not widely appreciated, writes Knights and Lomas, that when David was on the run from Saul, he served in the armies of the Philistines against the Israelites, a strange qualification for the founder of the greatest line of Israel's history. Yes, but it was one of that latter allowed him to understand these enemies and defeat them. David's kingly line was the chosen channel for the scepter. In fact, a scripture notes that there shall never be a time when there is not a king from this lineage. David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. We can imagine this to mean that there always was a bloodline heir to the throne, even if there was no throne to sit upon.